So a couple of weeks ago, whenever we kicked off this, this series, I shared a prayer with you that my youth minister shared with me like more than 20 years ago. And it, it, it was this prayer by St. Teresa of Avila. And, and, and honestly, it, it's a prayer that has resonated with me for a long time long time. Like multiple seasons of my life have, have, have come about, and this prayer just is stuck in my mind. And, and, and the prayer is this. Oh God, I don't love you. I don't even want to love you. But I want to want to love you. And man, I mean, that prayer to me, it's just so honest. It's so Raw, it's so vulnerable, it's so relatable. And I think it's also translatable. Like if, if you take that, that prayer out of the context of love for God and you move it into our belief in God, I think that the same prayer could be prayed in a manner like this. Oh God, I don't believe. I don't even want to believe. But I want to want to believe. Like, oh God, I, I don't believe. I don't even want to believe. Like, I understand. I completely understand what it means if I believe in you. I understand the trust that it takes to believe in you. I understand the faith that it takes to believe in you. I understand the level of surrender that comes with believing in you. I don't want to believe, but I want to want to believe. And it makes me wonder, what if all the belief we really need is the desire to believe? And so today we're in part three of our series entitled, Help My Unbelief. And there's a really, really good chance that every single person in this room at some point in your life has struggled with your belief in Jesus, has struggled with some sort of doubt in your faith journey. And if you have not personally struggled with it, there's a really, really good chance that somebody that you love has struggled with it or somebody that you know has struggled with it. The Barna Group, they did a, a study in 2017 that showed that two-thirds of American Christians admit to having some sort of doubt in their faith at some point in their life. And this could be an intellectual doubt, something that, that, that you just cannot reconcile what you see in the world with who God is. Maybe it deals with science. Maybe it deals with creation. Maybe it deals with miracles. Maybe it deals with resurrection. But there's something that, that intellectually you just can't believe. Or maybe it's an emotional doubt. And, and, and an emotional doubt can, can, can be something that has happened to you. It can be something that has happened to a loved one, something that they've experienced, something that you perceive in the world, but it leads you to ask this question. Why would God, or how could God, allow this to happen? Or, or, or maybe you've experienced some sort of a moral doubt. A moral doubt basically just says this, that, that if God believes fill in the blank is wrong, then God can't be real, God can't be Good and, and, and so, in other words, whenever it comes to the moral doubt, it's if God's morality does not line up with my morality, then God must be the one who's wrong. But in the day and age in which we live, this is happening more and more and more often. 
the number of books that are being written currently, like right now, about this phenomenon that people are calling the deconstruction of faith. In fact, this past week, I wasn't even looking, meaning I didn't even go to Google and, 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 type, you know, and, and type in like deconstruction of faith stories. But over the course of this week, just on my Twitter feed or something like that, I encountered multiple stories or posts or, 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 or articles that deal with this idea of doubting our faith. One of the articles that I found was, was by the Gospel Coalition. And the Gospel Coalition said this, the cause could be sex, race, politics, social justice, science, health, or all the above. But for many, Christianity is becoming implausible, and even impossible to believe. But as we've said throughout this series, our doubts do not have to be a reason to walk away or turn away from our faith. In fact, our doubts can be the catalyst to an even greater faith. Over the course of the last 20 years, I've had many, many, many people come to me and share with me the doubts that they have in their faith. Many different stories and many different scenarios, but, but I would say probably nine times out of ten that somebody comes to me and they say, Andy, I'm struggling in my faith. Andy, I'm, I, I have this question. Andy, I don't know what to do. Nine times out of ten, my answer normally starts something like this. I am so excited for you. And the reason that I tell them that I am so excited for them is one of the most beneficial things we can do as believers in Jesus is to understand why we claim to be believers in Jesus. And so often we just take our faith and we put it on, on, on the top shelf and say, yeah, this is something that I have, but we really don't know why we say that we have it. And whenever you go and you begin to ask questions, you begin to dig into your faith. I always let people know the thing that's going to happen, and I can say this because, again, of the confidence that I have in the resurrection, that if you look honestly at your doubts, you're ultimately going to come back to the resurrection. And once you get to that place, you're going to see that it literally changes everything. But I always tell them that, that the reason I'm excited for you is because once you get it, once you, you, you ask your questions, and once you dig into your faith, once you get it, like you're really, really going to get it, and that can lead to so many beautiful, beautiful things. Another post that I came up, uh, across this past week was by my friend Chad, Chad Ragsdale, and Chad, he's the academic dean at Ozark Christian College, and, and, and he wrote a blog post all about this current phenomenon of people deconstructing their faith. And in his post, in, in, in his blog, he, he quotes Timothy Keller, who said, faith without doubts, is like a human body without antibodies. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. And Chad, he followed up Keller's quote by saying, doubt is not antithetical of, of faith. In fact, it may be necessary to faith. A faith that never asks questions and never struggles with doubts is a faith that is fragile and very much at risk. Just like the human body wastes away without exercise or in physical struggle, a person's faith will waste away if not exercised with rigor and struggling through questions. We should all take our faith seriously enough to think about it and even ask questions 
of it. And so again, I, I ask the question, what if all the belief we need is the desire to believe? The story that we're going to look at today, it's a story of desperation, it's a story of hope, it's a story of healing, and, and in this story, we're going to see this prayer, or we're going to see this request that is made of Jesus that should bring comfort to any of us who have ever struggled with doubt. And the story, it takes place in Mark chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 9. If not, we'll have the verses on the screen here in just a moment. But at the beginning of Mark chapter 9, we see one of the most incredible things that happens in, in, in all the Gospels. I mean, Jesus' ministry is really reaching its apex at this point. It's been going on for nearly three years and things are going pretty well. He's getting really close to beginning to head towards the cross. But at this point in time, things are going pretty well. And at the beginning of Mark chapter 9, we see this event where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his inner three, his closest friends, the disciples, up on top of a mountain to experience and to witness the transfiguration. And the transfiguration is one of the most confusing theological things that we read about in the Gospels. But essentially what's taking place is Jesus is lifting the veil off of his humanity, his, his human body. And he's showing to everybody around the fullness of his deity for just a few brief moments. And while Peter, James, and John are up there with Jesus, eventually Moses is there, and then Elijah is there, and Moses shows up representing the law, and Elijah shows up representing the prophets, and Elijah and Moses are there basically just to affirm the fact that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. And so as Jesus and, 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 and uh, Peter and James and John, they begin to come down, and again, the, 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 the ministry of Jesus is really, really going well. But we see that the disciples, the other disciples are, I don't know how to exactly, figure, like they're really starting to feel themselves a little bit. Like they're starting to feel pretty good about themselves because of the proximity that they have to Jesus. And so whenever Jesus and Peter and James and John, they come down from the mountain, the first thing that they see is the disciples, the other disciples, in a little bit of a sticky situation. Because this man has brought his son, who was possessed by a demon, to the disciples, so that way the disciples could heal this, this man's child. But they were unable to do so. And whenever they were unable to do so, some of the other religious leaders who were around, uh, specifically like the scribes, whenever they were around, they began to kind of poke fun at the disciples and giving them a little bit of a hard time because they were unable to cast out the demon. And, and this is a completely different sermon, but, but Jesus eventually would tell the disciples, the reason that you were unable to cast out the demon is because this kind of demon can only be cast out through prayer. And that's such an interesting statement. Like I said, this, this isn't what we're talking about today, but I still want to just say this. That's, that's such an interesting statement because Jesus is not saying that there are different types of demons that can be cast out without prayer, but instead Jesus is saying, y'all just didn't pray. Y'all just didn't pray. You thought that you could do this on your own. The disciples were doing exactly what we tend to do from time to time whenever we begin to feel pretty good about ourselves. We begin to rely on our own strength, and we rely on our own abilities, and we rely on our own giftedness. But any time that we remove Jesus from the equation, 
our strength and our ability and our power greatly, greatly diminish. So anyway, Jesus and his inner three, they make their way down the mountain and they see this argument taking place between the disciples and the scribes. Whenever the boy's father, he steps in, he says, teacher, I brought my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not do it. The disciples had been able to do this in the past, but this time they tried to do so in their own power and they were unsuccessful. And here's something that we can relate with the disciples here. Failure is never fun. Defeat is seldom something that we delight in. It can be painful. It can be embarrassing. It can be humiliating. And there's no doubt right here for the disciples, they are experiencing a large, large dose of embarrassment because no one likes to look stupid in front of someone they love, right? And no one likes to feel like they've let down someone they love. And again, this is not the main point of the message. This is a completely different sermon that would be really, really fun to preach. But this is such an important lesson. We need to learn, we need to, to learn to let our limitations drive us to the unlimited resources of Jesus. We need to recognize that we will never advance beyond our need for Jesus. And so in verse 19, Jesus said, You unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And like I said a little bit earlier, Jesus is about three years into his ministry here. And so he spent a lot of time with this generation. And, and, and he's looking at this generation right now, and, and he's just realizing, man, they're missing it. They're not catching it. They're not grabbing on to everything that I want them to know. This kind of language is, is actually kind of common for Jesus during this portion of his ministry. In Mark chapter 8 is whenever Jesus would say that anyone who wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. One of these beautiful statements that Jesus makes about what it means to be his follower. But then just a couple of verses after he said those words, he, he says this, but if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation that the son of man will be ashamed of them when the time comes for his father's glory with the holy angels and so here jesus just simply asked you unbelieving generation how long shall i stay with you and then he says go ahead and bring the boy to me and so they brought the boy to jesus and when the spirit saw jesus it immediately threw the boy into convulsions and he fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth so verse 21, Jesus looked to the boy's father and he asked him, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water in an attempt to kill him. And what we see the demon do here in Mark chapter 9 is honestly what we see the majority of demons do whenever we encounter them all throughout 
the Gospels. There's a man by the name of Clinton E. Arnold, and, and I feel like that he does just such a great job of kind of summarizing what it is that demons did all throughout the Gospels. He says this. He says, demons are real and dangerous. Demons can make themselves known by speaking through people or even controlling their bodies. Demons are fallen angels and powerful spiritual beings. Demons can inflict great personal harm and have the ultimate goal of death. We see that in this situation. Demons can move or transform from one host to another. Demons can resist leaving a host. They may even beg out of their own self-interest. And demons can recognize and are subject to appropriate spiritual authority. And demons were forced to obey the commands of Jesus. And whenever you read about what it is that demons did all throughout the Gospels, immediately to my mind comes John chapter 10, verse 10. Because in John 10, 10, Jesus says these words. He says that the enemy, the enemy has come to steal and kill and destroy. But then he would say, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. And whenever we see what the demons are doing, the, the demons have come to do exactly what the enemy came to do. And we also see that Jesus came to do all that Jesus said that he would do. But listen here to the end of verse 22. It says, but if you can do anything, remember, this is the boy's father speaking to Jesus. But if you can do anything, take pity on us. And help us. So out of sheer desperation, the father turns to his only source of hope and help. He turns to Jesus. He's not fully convinced that Jesus can do what he hopes he can do. But although the father's faith is small, at least the father's faith is going in the right direction. But Jesus, he's, he, he notices that small little word, that small little word of if in the Father's request. So he says, if you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. And I believe Jesus said this with just like the slightest of smiles. Looking at the Father, if if I can, okay, okay, let me just tell you, everything is possible for the one who believes. But the father in no way, shape, or form was he trying to be disrespectful of Jesus. In fact, if we put ourselves in the shoes of the father, we can see that his question is really just an honest question. It's very likely that for years the father has been trying to find some sort of solution for his son's ailment. The number of religious people that he's probably taken his son to, the number of people that he's asked for their opinion and, and he hears an opinion and so he goes somewhere else. I mean, the number of places he's gone to try and find an answer for what's ailing his child. We know just moments earlier he had brought his son to Jesus' disciples but they were unable to do anything with his son. And there's something that we learn here. That whenever disappointment becomes your norm, doubt becomes your natural reaction. 
Whenever things don't go how you think they should go, whenever answers are not as obvious as you want them to be, whenever disappointment becomes your norm, doubt becomes your natural reaction. But the father, he wanted to make it clear that he wasn't questioning Jesus, that his question wasn't coming from, from, from a bad place. And so he responds in one of the most honest and vulnerable and relatable ways. Verse 24, it says that immediately, if you have your Bible out, like underline, circle that word, immediately, it's almost like, no, 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 Jesus, I, that's not what I meant. That, you, I, I don't want you to take, no, that's not what I meant, the boy's father exclaimed. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And at that moment, Jesus, he rebuked the spirit, he he cleansed the child and he ordered the spirit to never again enter the child. So again, I ask, what if all the belief that we need is the desire to believe? What if that desire is that mustard seed of faith that we've heard so, so much about? I do believe, but help my unbelief. You have, to, you, you, you have to love or at least respect the Father's honesty and humility. Effectively, the Father is saying, I know that my faith is weak. I know that my faith is partial. I know that my faith is incomplete. But still, Jesus, I trust you. But more than that, like I, I want to want to trust you. Because Jesus, if, if you don't deliver my son, then my son will never be delivered. So my request is this. Jesus, will you please help me in spite of me? It's such a relatable request. I mean, this, this father is literally a walking, talking contradiction. You ever been there? I believe, but I don't believe. So help me to believe. Church, we can believe God and struggle to believe at the same time and we can have confidence all the while that Jesus will accept us even in our struggle. But I don't want to go through probably a single message in this series without saying this. As believers in Jesus, we do not have to run from our doubt. We can lean into our doubts. Because eventually, this entire story, everything comes back to the resurrection of Jesus. And if that is true, it literally changes everything. And it gives us the firmest of foundations and the firmest of hopes to stand upon as we face the trials and the struggles of this world.
at the very end of Chad's blog post, he, he wrote about this father who struggled to believe in Mark 9. And he says that this is the father who was desperate for Jesus to heal his son. And in response to Jesus' appeal for faith, he, he exclaims, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. It's such an honest expression of faith mixed with uncertainty. The truth is, is that if you are waiting for certainty on every question before you will believe and trust in God, then you will remain in your skepticism forever. I love this line. He said, most every believer that I've ever known possessed a faith that limps. They have questions. They may even have some doubts, but they recognize the impenetrable mysteries of God, and they believe nevertheless. This is the good doubter, the doubter who isn't captive to skepticism and cynicism, but the doubter who trusts even in the midst of his questions and even believes in the midst of his unbelief. So one more time. What if all the belief we need is the desire to believe? What if it's just simply, oh God, I want to, want to believe. Will you pray with me this morning? Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the hope that we have in you and Father, I pray for the foundation that you've given us to stand upon, that we don't have to be scared of questions. We don't have to feel less than because of questions, but that we can know that we can have supreme confidence in who you are because of your resurrection, Jesus. And I, I pray today for any of us who are in this room and and we're in the middle of a season to where we are struggling to believe. And I pray that we will have the, the humility and the honesty and the vulnerability to be able to pray, Oh God, I believe, but help, help my unbelief. And I pray for any of us who are in here and maybe we're feeling ourselves just a little bit. Maybe we're thinking a little bit too highly of ourselves. Father, I pray that we will learn from the example of the disciples in this story that we will learn that we will never, ever advance beyond our need for you. So, Father, please humble us and allow us to see that you are good, that you have a plan. Whether we understand or not, Jesus, that, that we can have hope in you. So, Father, we thank you so much. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.